In American society, money is a taboo topic. We're taught at a young age it's improper to talk about it, but we're also bombarded with messages about the power and importance of money in our everyday lives. And by not talking about it, we miss out on the skills and lessons we need to effectively understand and financially plan. That changes today. Welcome to Money Tales. Hosted by Sandy Brager and Cami Doder, Money Tales brings more than 35 years of combined professional experience in personal finance to demystify money and demonstrate what it's like to speak openly about personal financial matters. Join us each episode as they interview modern-day movers and shakers about how money decisions intertwine with their daily lives in order to give you better insight into productive financial conversations. Subscribe today and register for our blog, Fathom, at aspirient.com slash podcasts to increase your money mojo. And now, here's Cammie and Sandy. Hi, this is Cammie. Jerry Valentine is our guest today on Money Tales. Jerry is one of the 6%. He was born to a single mother within a very low-income minority neighborhood in New York City, and it was a life where they often did without things that most people would consider necessities. Jerry became the 6% that are able to change the trajectory of their life. He navigated unseen ladders to catapult himself into financial success. Today, Jerry's an executive coach, public speaker, and author of the new best-selling book, The Thriving Mindset, Tools for Empowerment in a Disruptive World. With more than 27 years of Fortune 100 leadership experience, he's a trusted advisor to corporate executives, entrepreneurs, and high-performance individuals of all kinds. Hi, this is Sandy. Jerry has an amazing story. Here are three money tale conversation topics he brings to life in this conversation. First, the power of safety nets and what limits you have when you don't have any financial backstops. Second, just like physical health, financial health needs to be maintained over time. And finally, Jerry discusses how he challenged his own biases about debt to reach a better financial result for him and his husband. Please stick around after the interview for our takeaways from this discussion. Now, onto our conversation with Jerry Valentine. Jerry Valentine, welcome to Money Tales. We're so glad you're here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really glad to be here too. To get the conversation started, will you give us a brief overview of the journey of your life so far, focusing on two or three pivotal moments who really make you the person that you are today? Sure. As you said, my name is Jerry Valentine. I run my own executive coaching and public speaking business. I tend to work with leaders and entrepreneurs, different things with overcoming disruption, how to improve their leadership style, how to improve their success, particularly in disruptive times like the one we're in right now. The thing I would say is a pivotal moment is that I often refer to the life I lead today as my 6% story because I come from a very different type of background. I was actually born to a single mother in a very low-income neighborhood in New York City, And it was a life where we often did without things that most people would consider necessities, things like heat or electricity, sometimes simply because although my mother worked really hard and 10, 12, 14 hour days were the norm for her, sometimes she just did not have the money to pay the bills. So it was sometimes a choice between paying the utility bills or feeding us and food needs to come first. One pivotal moment was that I was very fortunate to get a scholarship to an elite private school. That education was something that I would say changed the arc of my life. 
I ended up going to an Ivy League college, Cornell University to be specific. And I left there, got an MBA from NYU. That launched me into a 30-year corporate career, very different from the life I was born into. And now I lead my own business. Another pivotal moment I might talk about is the fact that the adversity of my early life is fundamental to who I am. I would point to that early life experience, although very difficult and unjust, as a foundation for what has also made me successful through my corporate career and into the business I run today. Let's start with those early years and the adversity that you faced. Can you tell us more about what it was like to grow up with a mom who was working all the time and not knowing what was going to be paid? Were you guys having money conversations? We were not having money conversations. And I think that's one of the things that we need to talk about a lot more all up and down the economic spectrum ladder in very financially compromised households like the one I grew up in all the way up through. I know some people from fairly privileged backgrounds today who still don't have money conversations. People can become uncomfortable talking about money, saying that money is the root of all evil. I definitely disagree with that statement. People sometimes say that money won't make you happy, which I guess is true. But if you ever ask anyone from poverty like me, we will also tell you that the absence of adequate money can make you very unhappy. And it's not about the money itself making you happy, but money, or as I call it, financial health, opens the door to opportunity. And if you don't have financial health, you'll find those doors to opportunity closed and you'll continue in the very difficult spiral that I was born into. One early life experience I will tell you about, my mom was working all the time. She was actually a nurse through a very fortunate way. She'd found a way to get herself through nursing school, although that certainly was not the type of income in the area that we lived in that would support raising two kids on your own, at least not back in those days. I remember one time I had a talent for math very early on. It became evident by sixth grade. I was either probably eighth, ninth grade, something like that. I was struggling with the difference between the lives that the kids that I went to school with lived, who were very, very privileged lives, typically doctors, lawyers, whatever you have as parents, often both of them. I spent weekends at home worried about whether my mom would make it home from work safely because we lived in a really difficult neighborhood. They typically spent weekends in their country houses. So quite a juxtaposition of lifestyles there. And I remember at one point becoming really frustrated about how we just never seemed to have money to pay the bills and difficult things would happen because bills weren't paid. And I remember sitting down, it was probably eighth grade, maybe even seventh grade, and taking out all of our bills from one month, adding them up, and then taking my mom's paycheck stub and trying to figure out, all right, how do we do this such that we are not going to have the light shut off or worry about when the phone's going to be shut off? And what I discovered was that it mathematically was not possible, that her paycheck divvied among all of our expenses did not fit all the bills. Mathematically, that was why we were always juggling which bill is most overdue and why we found ourselves falling further and further and further behind. And I have to tell you, for a young kid, that is a very disquieting moment. And then you add the emotional dissonance of literally spending my days with kids who led a very different reality. 
it was a pretty stark, startling moment that I will say has certainly stayed with me. Jerry, that's incredible. It was quite the moment when I realized mathematically this doesn't work. How'd you even think about going through this exercise of bringing out these bills? To me, it feels very mature. What drove you to even go through this exercise? Did it change anything you could do to change the outcome or how'd you process that? I will say that from those early experiences, those experiences of scarcity, there is both a positive and a negative outcome to going through those experiences. So the positive outcome is I'm very sensitive about money. And the negative outcome is at 59 years old, I'm still very sensitive about money. The double-edged sword. (laughs) It is definitely a double-edged sword. So on the positive side, I think that seeing the juxtaposition of these two worlds, that the reality I experienced is more true today than it was in the 1970s when I was going through it. I live in New York City. I grew up in New York City. And New York City is a very interesting place because we have some of the wealthiest people in the country juxtaposed with some of the poorest people in the country, literally living right next to each other. The dissonance of those two realities is really important and something that we don't actually pay attention to. When I was coming up, I'm reading a book right now, actually, a woman, her name is Fiona Hill. She actually has served in three presidential administrations and her expertise is Russian policy, but she grew up, yeah, she's a Brit and she grew up in a very disadvantaged part of Britain. And she's talking about her life experiences, which are interestingly parallel to my own. And one of the things she speaks about, which I really agree with, is that the ladders out of poverty and into opportunity have, over the last 20, 30, 40 years, become fewer. And so that means that we need to pay even more attention to economic opportunity, to maintaining financial health for those of us who are fortunate enough to have it, and opening avenues of opportunity for people who do not, who are not born into those worlds. One thing that came out of that early life experience is that I had a great deal of sensitivity to money. So going to college for me, there was no other answer. That had to happen, whatever it took. I was fortunate there were opportunities to get scholarships at that point in time. It also meant that I was very focused on career, what was going to be the outcome. The thought of graduating college with debt but no career was not a possibility in my world. There was no European vacation after college. I was working weeks after I graduated. I was very, very focused on what my salary was going to be and all of that, although I did not always make the best decisions. And we can probably get to some of that because still, although I was focused, I didn't have a lot of money. That focus on money, I would say, was great and healthy. The negative part can come in when your focus on money leads to a mindset of scarcity. Another story I will tell is that on into my corporate career, I had an MBA at that point. Now we're talking, I'm in my late 20s, early 30s, and I'm working in some pretty tough corporate environments. I started my career with American Express, which is a great place to work, but also a hugely competitive place. One period while I was here, I had this really difficult, I would say, destructive boss. And whenever I'd had a bad day at work, One thing I would do, I maintained a spreadsheet on my computer that started with my total savings. And much like when I was in junior high school, had a list of all my expenses. And then it was a monthly calculation. If I lost my job, 
how long would it be to the point when I ran out of money? Because for me, there was no backstop. You lose your job, you're in trouble. There are no parents to go to. There's no family to go to. At that point, there were no friends that I could go to who are in better off situations. The good part of that is that you keep a careful eye. I was not spending excessively. The bad part of that story is that because you don't have that financial backstop, that level of financial health that I talk about, you also may not take a leap towards opportunities that might come with a certain amount of risk. Does that make sense about how those two constraints work together? Can I tell you one more story about this? Please. I recently got in touch with a friend that I knew in grad school, and we worked together at a company not long after our graduation. We were very close, and we fell out of touch, and we've recently gotten back in touch. He came from a different background than I do. I'm an African-American man. He is white. But what I didn't know at the time was that we both came from a background of tremendous economic struggle. One of the other negative things is that people who are trying to ascend in their careers and up the corporate ladder who are from backgrounds of financial struggle typically don't talk about those backgrounds in the workplace because talking about your background of struggle can be viewed negatively in the corporate workplace. I think that's a bad thing. We should be having those conversations, but we tend not to. The thing that this friend of mine and I shared recently is that we were both going through tremendous financial struggle. And we discovered that right about at the same time, we both had an opportunity to make a real estate investment that if we fast forward today, literally would have been about a million dollars profit. So I had the opportunity to buy a significant one-bedroom apartment on the Upper West Side in New York City for $300,000. This was in the early 1990s. Fast forward to today, the market value of a property like that would be north of $1,300,000 today. Similarly, my friend, his name is Dave, had the opportunity to purchase a house for $175,000 on Long Island, which is commuting distance from New York. It's a really nice suburb right now. Once again, now that would be worth north of $1,175,000. So literally, million-dollar opportunity here that we both didn't move on because we both felt so financially constrained at that point in time that taking on that level of debt was unthinkable because we could have lost everything. At that moment in time, we would have been great. We would have both made quite a bit of money on that deal, but we didn't know that. And all we could think about was the risk. When I say that the lack of financial health, which neither of us had at that time, will cost you opportunity, both of those are interesting parallel stories about how you may not be able to seize opportunity if you don't have the backstop of financial health. So Jerry, just to help our listeners, how do you define financial health? I define financial health in a few layers. So one of the mistakes that I made early in my career, and it's a mistake that a lot of people make, is they confuse high salary with wealth. And those are two entirely different things. High salary, high income is great, but it's also erratic and somewhat unpredictable because you get a bad boss and within a certain amount of time, that really great salary goes to zero. Wealth, as you guys would understand, is quite a different concept. It's the concept of your assets minus your liabilities. When you have wealth, which is well-managed, 
Over time, it tends to grow at a predictable rate. Of course, you know, there are unforeseen things or market ups and downs. You have to be mindful about your investment decisions, but it's a very different concept than salary. So one of the notions that I think goes into financial health is understanding this difference and making strategic decisions such that whatever you're doing is increasing that long-term wealth. Another concept that I put into this idea of financial health, which is parallel in the areas in which we both work, is an understanding of finance. I don't mean an understanding to the level such that one can be a financial planning professional. I have an MBA and I use a financial planning professional who I respect very much. And sometimes I'm a little embarrassed, like, oh my God, she knows so much that that I don't know. And I have an MBA. They are different professions. First off, developing your own financial knowledge, financial understanding, such that you can have the appropriate conversations and understand the appropriate concepts around building and managing wealth. Have the appropriate advice in your life. There are many ways that we today can seek advice. And that notion of, first off, being the intelligent consumer, such that you know how to listen to the advice and how to calibrate the advice you're receiving, but then to receive the advice in whatever form is appropriate for you on those levers that you ought to be considering to make the decisions that will then feed back upon themselves and increase that wealth. Does that make sense? It's a much bigger concept than just salary. Jerry, you told the story about you and Dave, your friend. To me, the decision sounded more of an issue of a financial safety net. You both seem really financially healthy from knowledge. You didn't want to take on risk. You were very good about your expenses and what you could cover. Tell us more. Why do you think this was a financial health? I actually think that neither of us had real financial health at that point. We were still young. The thing that we had that I think worked well for us was we both had a real understanding, okay, income expenses, got to keep that in line. And we were both being really careful because we both had enormous debt, but we didn't have wealth because at that point, our debts exceeded our net savings. We had income, we had very healthy income. We were mindful of our expenses and our income. We didn't have wealth. Net, we had negative wealth because we both had enormous educational debt at that point. Neither of us had adequate understanding of personal financial management at that point in time. And neither of us had the appropriate counsel yet in our lives such that we could make the better decision. So this decision on both our parts to step away from these opportunities It's impossible to say, looking in hindsight, whether that was the right decision or not. It probably wasn't, but who knows what might have happened. But it was not a decision that came based on counseling, appropriate counseling from a financial professional. It was purely a fear-based in the scarcity mindset decision. Jerry, tell us how you grew out of that scarcity mindset and achieved financial health over time. As we're talking, I'm realizing I'm liking this concept of health even more because it's almost like physical health. It's something that needs to be maintained over time. And so when you say come to a point of financial health right now, 
I don't know. I mean, I can still feel that scarcity mindset well up in me. One of my behaviors that's not so great is I will squirrel money. It's got to be in a thousand places because who knows what could happen. And I have to think about that. So I think financial health is parallel to physical health in that you have to manage it all the time. We all, particularly as we get on in years, we're going to discover we have physical health issues that we need to think about. We probably have behaviors that we need to manage that are not in line with maximizing our physical health. I think financial health is parallel. I'll tell you another story. One thing that happened to me was, frankly, making some bad decisions and having to unpack those bad decisions and reconcile the negative consequences. I'm going to rewind back a little bit more. I went to Ivy League school, Cornell University. Again, very fortunate to have scholarships to go there. It was one of those things, pivotal moment changed my life. And it's a place where, once again, you will discover many different realities. So I was definitely struggling. And I had classmates and colleagues and friends even whose parents gave them a BMW to go to college because you, you made it into great school. You deserve this. You ought to have a BMW to zip around campus in because it's a long way from the dorm to class. Very, very different realities, abutting realities there. It was something that I really emotionally struggled with through college. I really, really, really wanted a nice car. And I made a deal with myself. My undergrad was electrical and computer engineering, which, you know, is a somewhat demanding field, you might say. <laughs> Sounds kind of easy to me. I don't know. Practically basket weaving. But it was the right discipline for me. It suited my talents or so I thought. It certainly was a very lucrative field to be in. And I made a deal with myself probably sophomore year, maybe even freshman year, that if I could survive this difficult discipline, and it was definitely a weed out program, it was one of those look to your left, look to your right, one of the you're not going to be here in four years kind of programs. If I could make it through this program, and if I could land a job before graduation, I graduated in 1985, much like today, industry could not lap up engineers fast enough. So it was typical for engineering graduates to have an accepted job offer either during or before second semester senior year. So you typically graduated with a job and they tended to be great paying jobs for college graduates in, in today's dollars. So I said, if I can do this, I'm going to buy myself a new car. That will be my reward. And so sure enough, made it through. Landed my job offer, I think in February of my senior year, I landed the job offer that I accepted to join a management training program. I won't mention the company, but it was a very, very large company. And it was you know, management training. I was really excited. I decided I didn't want to work as an engineer, but I wanted to go on a business track. They were hiring engineers for the management training and all that. So I had saved up a couple of thousand dollars from my summer internship between junior and senior year, because it was typical for engineers to have summer internships and thousand dollars scrolling away back then. That was quite a bit of money. What I decided I wanted was a VW Scirocco. It's a very hot car at the time. And so with my job offer in hand, I went down to the local VW dealer and bought myself a graphite black VW Scirocco, which costs $12,000. I will never forget that number, which today doesn't seem like a lot. Back then, a lot of money for a car. And I put down $1,000 on that $12,000 car. So you can imagine the kind of interest rate I had and also someone with basically no credit history. So this was not cheap, but I was really happy. And I went off to that first job and I'd done my math and I could easily afford this on the salary. So life sounds good, right? 
until I discover within the first couple of months of that job that I actually hated the job, that it was in this area that I really disliked living. The job was not what it was promised to be. The training was very minimal. This was not going to land me on the career path that I was hoping for. But always looking out, I had also applied to business school because I realized, okay, you know what? The real way to get where I want is an MBA. And I was fortunate. I got not only into NYU business school, but I got a fantastic scholarship package to NYU. So I could actually afford it. There's one thing wrong in this story, that car. The loan payment. (laughs) You got it. The thing I could not afford was thinking of the car payments. So here I was in this job. I hate, by the way, I'm driving 30 miles a day each way to work. So I'm spending a lot of time in that car. And I have this car. I can stay in this job that is not working out well, make my loan payments, or I can default on my loan payments so that I can take this scholarship. Otherwise, I'm going to have to let this slip away. Really great lesson in poor financial health, opportunity knocking at the door. What do you do? I got really lucky. I was able to get another loan so that I had enough money to sell the car, which was now worth less than I owed on it. So I borrowed money to sell the car. I think I borrowed another thousand dollars so I could afford to sell the car. Sounds crazy, right? went off to business school. Now, fortunately, my salary more than doubled in two years. So it made a lot of sense to have done this. To this day, I have never again bought another new car. (laughs) No disrespect to anyone who buys new cars. New cars are wonderful if that is what you like. I buy three-year-old cars and I'm 59 years old. I have yet to buy another new car. My husband has bought a new car, but I have not bought another new car. Jerry, thank you for sharing that story with us. I'm curious, as you look back and you tell that story today, What are your feelings around the decisions you were making at the time? The major feeling I have for my 20, 21-year-old self as I was graduating from college is a lot of sympathy for that young man because I was working incredibly hard at everything I did. And there was so much I didn't know. I did not understand the realities of a car purchase. Nobody in my immediate family had purchased a car. That was not in our reality. There was no one in my circle to advise me on what the appropriate and most beneficial decisions were to make, financial decisions or many other decisions that I didn't know. The feeling that really comes up, and I think this is this has implications for financial decisions, but all kinds of decisions, is just how hard it is to access opportunity. So people who have opportunity and may have access to financial advice and assets, other 21-year-olds would say, oh my God, that's a crazy decision. Why in the world would you make it? You need to ask, okay, so how do you know that's a crazy decision? Well, I asked my mom or I asked my financial planner or I asked my dad and they told me, what happens when you can't do that? There are many feelings. It's a really great question. I'm loving it. I'm going to ponder it more. There are many feelings that come up. It's a great deal of sympathy for that young man. A certain feeling of sympathy and trepidation for the young men and women who are in similar circumstances today, because I would say the stakes are much higher for them and the risk is much higher for them than it was for me. 
there's a feeling of being very fortunate that I know more now than I did then. There's a feeling to realize when you come from those circumstances where you don't have money, just how perilous the world can be, even when you think you're doing the right thing, just how perilous everything is. You guys mentioned a little bit earlier in this conversation, the concept of safety net, just how dangerous life can be when you're operating without a safety net. We're talking about a $1,000 gap, right? For most people whom you would know and whom I know, really not a big deal. Really, $1,000 was going to wreck your life? Yes, it was. Absolutely. $1,000 could have been ruinous to me at that point in time. When you expand the aperture, there's some terrifying statistic out there that something like 60% of the American public could not afford a $400 unexpected expense in today's dollars. I think it's actually two thirds. The feeling that comes up is just how high the stakes are when you don't have a safety net. And we all make wrong decisions. No matter who you are, you make mistakes. If you don't have a safety net, the small mistakes can be ruinous. Such an important story. And thank you for underscoring a thousand dollars because people who do listen might not connect in that way. And then you put it to that important point. How do you not come from a more fear-oriented perspective? When $1,000 would be ruinous. Right. Would you consider yourself a risk taker or not? The answer to that question has evolved over time. Going back in time to that 21-year-old young man, I would say I was not a risk taker. I didn't have a lot of knowledge. So they were genuine mistakes. They weren't crazy risks that I was taking. Fast forward into my 30s and 40s. As my knowledge set grew, I clamped down even more on risk because I was more cognizant of what could go wrong. And now I would say entering a different phase of life, probably starting in my 50s, actually, when I launched my business, my appetite for risk grew. And the reason my appetite for risk grew is two factors. One was life experience. The world had not ended. <laughs> I had survived 50 years on this planet. And not only had the world not ended, I had built a pretty amazing life for myself. And one of the things I had done in those first 50 years was build a safety net. Much like health, the safety net is made up of a lot of things. It's financials. I have a wonderful husband, so together that makes a safety net. I have a financial advisor whom I respect very much. She is part of my safety net. The team. It's a team, right? Now I have friends, some of whom come from very different backgrounds, some of whom come from very similar backgrounds. There's more counsel around me. So I'm willing to take more risk because there's that robust safety net, which is not just the money I have in the bank. Jerry, I'm wondering how your relationship with money that has evolved so fully over the course of your life intersected with your relationship with your mom as you went to college, graduated college, and began to make a lot of money and build wealth ultimately. That is a fantastic question, Sandy. It reminds me of another question that when I started working with professional financial planners, maybe 20, 25 years ago, and I was always surprised the good ones would ask, so tell me about your family background. Tell me about your family's relationship with money. And at first I thought, what are you talking? We're dollars and cents people. We're here to talk about that. Why are we talking about touchy-feely stuff? 
And now as a much wiser person, I know that is a very important question. The intersection of my mom and my current relationship with money, and I would say her relationship with money is multifaceted. One is a deep and profound sense of the importance of money. I believe money is very important and good or evil comes from what you do with your money, but money is very important. Recognizing the positive side of that scarcity, I am one who is always going to be taking a look frequently at how much money I have. There will always be a sense of, okay, how is that going? But then also realizing how the lack of knowledge about money can be detrimental, if not devastating, because my mom worked incredibly hard and she tried incredibly hard to make the right decisions about money, but the information was not there for her. And so many of the instruments that you and I have to help build our financial health were not available to her. Again, she did purchase a house, I would say by the skin of her teeth managed to keep it. It was not in a great area, but that was what was available to her at the time because of redlining. Do you guys know what redlining is? Unfortunately, yes. In the 1960s and 70s, financial institutions essentially redlined on maps where Black people and people of color were allowed to buy homes. And they simply would not finance them. They would not provide insurance. The most important asset that Americans have for developing wealth and developing intergenerational wealth was not available to her. I think about what I have that she didn't have. It is very clear to me that I have options that the vast majority of Black men and women, the people of color today, do not have access to simply because I was fortunate enough to scoot through a door that, of opportunity that was open to me. Once you build a certain critical mass, then things get better. There's still a lot of injustice that I face on a day-to-day -day basis in the world, but it's a lot better because I have much more financial health. When I think about that, the third thought is gratitude for everything I have and that she just did not have and was not available to her and was not going to be available to her no matter how hard she worked. How are you so grateful? I'd be angry, frustrated. Both things are true. <laughs> so... I am grateful for what I have. The way that is expressed is to try to really enjoy what I have. And at the same time, oh yeah, I'm frustrated. I'm furious at what goes on in the world. I've spent most of my life in New York City. And one asset I did have was a very good sense of New York City neighborhoods. So I could tell which neighborhoods were about to come up. I'm thinking back to the early 90s. Although I did not own property, what I would do is I would get rent-controlled apartments, so I would pay very little for apartments, and I would be squirreling away that money. I would rent apartments that were well below my ability to pay for. And I remember having a work colleague, he's a white man, who was just kind of outraged that making the kind of salary I made, that I would get a rent-controlled apartment. And he thought this was justification for why rent control ought not to exist. Because you had people, quote, like me, who were, quote, milking the system. And I remember thinking, I have no money. You have multiple generations of economic advantage you can tap into. I have nothing. So no, I'm not milking the system. I am 
trying to develop some type of financial wealth for myself, which P.S. you already have. It's outrageous. But then you think about there's a tome of information I have to give this guy if he's even open to it, which he's probably not, to get him to understand it. Yeah, there's anger. And my experience is I have to hold those things in separate buckets because the worst thing I could do, considering what my mother sacrificed and so many other people sacrificed on my behalf, is to not enjoy and leverage what I have available to me. And so if the anger gets to the place where it's taking away from that, that's a loss. At the same time, I am furious at some of the stuff that still goes on and in a lot of ways has gotten worse. The other thing I might add to that is I have a tremendous amount of concern about the path that we as a nation, I could by extension say the world, is on from the standpoint of money, financial health, and inequality. So there is a real cycle that I see from my vantage point unfolding with wealth. And the issue we have is that wealth, I believe, has continued to become more pooled And when wealth becomes pooled to that extent in an increasingly small part of the population, you get resentments arising. The amount of resentment that is at play in the world right now is quite frightening, especially in this country. And resentment is an interesting thing. That's one of the reasons that I have a tremendous amount of joy in my life. I'm very fortunate for those things. I'm very angry about injustice that still exists. But it's very important to not let the anger turn into resentment because resentment leads to self-destructive decisions. This amount of resentment that we have welling up in political races in the United States, that the sense of grievance and resentment that's there because the number of people who find themselves on the outside who are not getting the life that they believe that they ought to have has grown. Resentment, as it has done in history, can lead to some atrocious actions. We are getting perilously close to some of those voices in this country. And I think that the amount of financial inequality we have, coupled with the resentment that it breeds, is a real danger to the democratic process. That's a scary thing. I guess I would sum up the feelings of saying, very grateful for what I have. Very important. Part of the payback is to enjoy it. Part of the payback is to help others to the extent I can understand what's possible, donate money where appropriate, to also call out what I see and what's going on, and to be really mindful about some really dangerous, destructive tendencies I think we have going on. You point out some very real risks, Jerry, and I appreciate doing that. I want to explore how you're helping people. And one of the ways you help people in your career is by coaching them and by speaking. And you've also recently written a book, The Thriving Mindset. I'd like you to share with us a bit about the book When I was reading it, I kept thinking about the thriving money mindset. I know that wasn't the name, but I kept putting money in there. Can you tell us more about what led you to write this book and what you're hoping to achieve? Thank you for mentioning that and for reading my book. 
You position it from the standpoint of giving back. And that's one of the reasons I wrote the book. I come from, as we've discussed, a personal background that has a lot of disruption, a lot of uncertainty, a lot of adversity, a lot of disruption. Part of my journey was learning how to deal with that. And one of the things I learned along my journey, although no one should have to face the type of adversity and disruption I did, and we need to fix the injustice in our society, at the same time, overcoming disruption for me was a great teacher. There are a lot of lessons I learned along the way. We've spoken about some of them here today, like we've spoken about lessons I learned in financial health. There are many other types of lessons I learned that I spoke about in the book. I think this ability to overcome disruption is a skill, not a trait. One of the things I learned through my corporate career is that people who worked for me, that I could actually help them better overcome disruption based on my experience, and even often people from very different backgrounds, because I had learned skills. And I found that when I started my coaching practice, many of the clients who were attracted to me were people who were going through some type of disruption. It might be a disruptive time to their company. They might have had a career setback. They might have just gotten a promotion, which is also another type of disruption. This notion of overcoming disruption is a set of skills, practices that we can put into place. That's what I tried to distill in the book. What are the day-to-day practices? I think this notion of overcoming disruption, overcoming adversity is very important at this moment. We are in a pandemic, which is, we would argue, the most disruptive force our society or humanity has faced in 100 years, although maybe we would say more because the COVID death toll has now exceeded the death toll from the flu of 1918. Yeah. Isn't that terrifying? It's really scary. It's really scary. The U.S. death toll has exceeded 700,000, which was how many people were killed by the flu of 1918. Perhaps the most disruptive force we've ever faced. I wrote the book pre-COVID. So I'm actually not talking about COVID in the book. And literally before the book went to press, I was thinking. So I wrote this book about disruptive change. And I was thinking about things like deindustrialization, computers replacing people in jobs and all that. And now I'm launching it during a global pandemic. Are the things I talk about in the book equal to the disruption of the moment? And I thought about it for a while. I realized, yes, they are. I did not rewrite the book about COVID, but I do think this notion of building the capability in broad ranges of people to productively face disruption and to what I call find the opportunity that always exists on the other side of disruption is a fundamental milestone capability that we need to build as a society. We talked earlier about the dark forces that are emerging, really dangerous things, trends that we're seeing, dangerous voices we're seeing. I think those things are happening because we as a nation don't deal well with disruptive change. Giving people the ability to deal more effectively with disruptive change, actually find the opportunity on the other side of disruption, is what leads us out of those dark forces and prevents us from falling into those cycles. Before we let you go, you mentioned your husband, which I think is always really interesting when we think about money conversations and how we bring it into our family. 
How do you and your husband have money conversations? I think we are really good at having money conversations. We come from, in one way, very different backgrounds and another way, very similar backgrounds. I'm an African-American man who grew up in very poor urban neighborhood. My husband is a white man who people look at his presentation and think that he is a person from privilege because he looks like that. That is his demeanor. He grew up in a very underprivileged rural area. In a lot of ways, we are country mouse, city mouse, but also with that underpinning. I'm more at risk of that scarcity mindset than he is for various reasons. But the place he grew up, those are the regions that are experiencing deindustrialization right now, the Rust Belt regions. I went down the education route to find opportunity. He did the same thing. The launching pads were similar. They were just different parts of the country. One of the things that really helps us in these conversations about money, but many other things, is that we can look at the same issue from different perspectives. Both of us had to build what we have. We both feel very lucky to have what we have, but the situations were a little bit different. I'm glad you guys have been able to have such healthy conversations and see different perspectives and really build off one another. It's wonderful. I think that having the appropriate partner in money discussions, really important and really important to be able to have those conversations about what does financial health look like for you together? Critically important. It's hard for me to imagine any other way. And I know that what we have is special. That's not necessarily typical that many couples are not able to have those kinds of discussions. I don't know how you do it if you can't have a discussion as a couple. I think that'd be really hard. Another thing to be grateful for, and I think back to your book and your conversations about courageous leaps. And I think sometimes just having a money conversation with someone else, regardless of their role in your life, can be a very courageous leap. It takes a lot of courage to have money conversations. I would add that to the financial health conversation. One of the things that's really critical, I do talk about this in the book, I didn't talk about it today, is overcoming the fear and shame associated with money. Another concept I talk about in the book is this notion that when we face a disruptive force, you can fall into a type of paralysis, which is about making ineffective decisions that actually make the disruption you're facing even worse, not better. What you're mentioning is a courageous leap out of that type of paralysis, which is critical many ways to make a courageous leap. From the standpoint of money, overcoming fear and shame, because the problem with money, and I will say early on in my career when I was not making the best financial decisions, not because I didn't want to, because I simply didn't know how, that car decision we talked about, I had a lot of shame about that. Like, How could I, a reasonably smart, resourceful, and responsible individual make such a bad decision? Well, I didn't know. They don't want to talk to anybody about it, which I think happens a lot when people make the wrong money decision. But if you don't talk to anybody about it, you can't get the information you need to become more healthy in your financial decision-making. It's important to have the courage to make the leap such as you can get the counsel you need. Well said. We've got one final question. Would you tell us who's your next money conversation going to be with and what's it going to be about? I will tell you, Daniel and I have money conversations all the time, like literally every week and not a negative way, in a very positive way. We're always looking ahead because we come from a place where we didn't have much money. 
We will very soon be having a year-end money conversation with our financial advisor. It's been an interesting year for us. We've actually purchased and renovated a new home. And there's a whole bunch of planning that went beforehand with that. Like how much debt should we take on? Should we take on debt at all? And this is one of the reasons that it's perfect for what you guys have been talking about. Thinking back, my mother was always terrified about losing her home because of the mortgage. I was raised with the point of view that debt mortgage is a bad thing. Should not have debt, should have zero debt. Well, it turns out the answer to that question is, it depends. <laughs> I wanted to buy a home for all cash. We have a home outside of the city. We have an apartment in the city. We sold our old apartment, bought a new apartment. But we can buy this for cash. Buy it for cash, no loans. Don't want to do it, don't want to do it, don't want to do it. No mortgage. Our financial advisor talks about, you know what? We're at record low mortgage rates. And you guys have sky high credit ratings. You need to think about strategic debt. It's the right decision. Would not have done that without the right counsel. To answer your question, we've purchased, renovated, dust is settled, have the appropriate amount of debt that I agree is the right thing. It should not have been 100% cash. End of year is coming. We're going to have a conversation with her. Dust is settled. Let's talk about the next step. Jerry, that's a conversation that warms my heart. We wish you guys a lot of great conversation with your advisor and good things to come in your homes in the decades ahead. And we thank you for this very insightful conversation. It was really powerful to hear how you were a 6% success story. I certainly hope that that number comes up and is a lot higher in the years ahead and that we can all do things to make that happen. So thank you for being with us today. Thank you guys. This has been a wonderful conversation. I've really enjoyed it. I appreciate it. Thank you, Jerry. Hey, Cammy, what was your biggest money insight from this conversation with Jerry Valentine? Sandy, Jerry was very inspiring and really brought to life some important thoughts. And one was the idea of the power of safety nets and having a backstop that allows you to take risks. I thought risk takers just are some innate being that people are willing to go out on a limb. And if they're entrepreneurs, get to a point where they don't have any money. And Jerry really brought to life that you don't have that choice if you don't have a financial backstop. Some of us have this through the families we were fortunate to be born into who might have wealth, and some create their own backstop, and Jerry has. That was really an important concept because it deters someone from taking a chance on something that might be really good and how unfortunate that is. I'm so glad you brought up the fact that Jerry was able to create his own safety net over time. In personal finance, one of the first things that we talk with people about is creating an emergency reserve, a pool of money that you can draw on in case an unexpected result occurred. Based on Jerry's storytelling, this emergency reserve can also serve as a safety net to allow you to take risks that you might not have taken because you now have some money set aside and can back you up if your risk doesn't pan out, whatever it is. How about you? What was one of the key takeaways from the conversation for you? It was really interesting how Jerry talked about financial health and put it on the same parallel as physical health. There are things that we should be doing for our financial health to maintain it and keep it strong over time. Jerry mentioned a few things that were really interesting. One was the idea that salary or income does not equal wealth. 
certainly when people make a lot of money, that could be a stepping stone toward accumulating wealth. What's important is not only how much are you making, but how much are you spending? If you're spending less than you're making, then there's some money left over that you can save or invest and grow over time. And that becomes the nest egg for creating wealth. He also talked about the importance of understanding personal finance, You're really understanding the vocabulary, not being an expert, but being able to be conversant so that when you seek advice, you can be an intelligent consumer of that advice and you know how to listen to it. I thought that was all very interesting. Just like someone who goes to the gym to get some cardio or to pump some iron, these are some things that people can work on to maintain their financial health. I like that he also said that he works with a financial advisor. He's very competent. He's got that intelligence, but he knows I want someone who's involved in studying and really looking out for him who's got that expertise. He's investing. I thought that was really powerful. And I do think when you're in a relationship with a financial advisor, there's a lot of education that can come from that relationship and the advisor should be able to help you fill in areas where you may not be familiar with the vocabulary. Such a great point. And if they're not, they're missing a great opportunity. Jerry talked at the end of our conversation about how he had a bias towards debt because he didn't have this financial safety net. He had the Scirocco story where debt could have held him back from a great next step for him. I really appreciated that through his conversations with his husband, he realized this was limiting him. And it sounds like they have a really healthy relationship about money conversations and they have a lot of them. And that's really a great story about how those conversations and Jerry's awareness of this bias has really helped him and his family achieve these better results. The story that Jerry shared about the Scirocco was a really important learning in his early life. And not only did he learn from it, but I think it really imprinted in him some warning signs and some concerns, especially as it related to buying new cars. And as you mentioned, Cami, about debt as well. And so that's something that he carried with him. And when he and his husband were buying the house and the advisor suggested that they put the mortgage on the house, Jerry was like, no way, which is something we see with clients often. Some people like Jerry just had a bad experience with debt and other people have been raised in families where debt is considered a really bad thing. They're raised to not use debt at all. Debt is one of those financial instruments that has some emotional baggage around it for many people. It is important when you think about your own personal finances and whether you're looking at some sort of asset strategy or debt strategy to become aware of your bias like Jerry did and to challenge it and see if it still holds. If it does, don't borrow money to buy a home. Peace of mind is really important and it's better for people to choose financial directions that are comfortable for them. But if they can get to the point where they see If we mortgage this home, we can borrow at a really low rate that frees up our ability to use money for other things that might achieve a higher rate of return. Jerry ultimately got there and bought into that and he was able to move forward in a comfortable way. Jerry had some really great stories that bring to life things that every one of us faces at one point in time or another. I appreciate Jerry sharing his stories with us, Cammie, and his learnings. I did too, Sandy. For our listeners, if you get a chance, his book, The Thriving Mindset, Tools for Empowerment in a Disruptive World, is a really fantastic read. 
we learned a lot from it and I think you will too. Absolutely. And thank you, Money Tales listeners, for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, please share it with your friends. Jerry has a great story and we hope a lot of people can learn and benefit from it. You can reach us at podcasts at Asperient.com. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Money Tales, hosted by Sandy Brager and Cami Doder. To subscribe to the show on your favorite platform or to increase your money mojo via their blog, Fathom, head on over to Asperient.com slash podcasts. Thanks, and we'll see you next time on Money Tales. Money Tales.